as with real life, <clears throat> we do things and then we break up and go do other things and then get back together and do things together. The spiritual experience is one is a unifying experience. Okay. So throughout this deal, if we're doing this right, when we take a break, y'all are gonna break up and go talk to each other. And uh, when you come back in, half of you are gonna keep talking to each other. We have a common purpose in this room, and <clears throat> need to refocus on that each time. And I'm gonna give you just a childish image that has helped me. Please don't ritualize what I'm about to say. <laughs> this image has just helped me get centered. Uh, and it's a simplistic view of pottery. Any of you potters or no potters? It's a very simple thing they do. It's very spiritual. <coughs> to cast a good pot, all you need to do is get the clay centered on the wheel. And if the clay is properly centered, when the potter begins to spin the wheel, the natural forces of centrifugal force and gravity tend to throw it right straight up. And all the potter has to do is kind of form it and encourage it a little bit. If it's the slightest little bit off, and the more off-center it is, the more it tends to throw it out this way, and you've got to drag it back in, and it's a lot of hard work. There are several places in my experience that I can center. Right dead center in my head is a centering place. There's another one right here in my diaphragm. The one the Chinese call the Tantian, which is a power center, is right down in here. My spiritual center, when I close my eyes and think about going within and centering, is just right here. I don't know where yours is. But I'm going to suggest each time we get together, we just get quiet for a minute, get centered, empty our minds, and then we'll know what we're going to do next. Does that suit everybody? However it is you do that. Okay. doing a retreat in Santa Barbara in a monastery. <clears throat> it's a really good place to do a retreat, by the way. Uh, with a group out of Los Angeles. And uh, it was really hard to get them quieted down again after each break. And we had some singers with us. Uh, it was their profession. So one of them just went, hmm. And her partner caught it and did a, a harmonic counterpoint to it. And it was so pretty. It just hit the room and got it quiet. So after the next break, she did the same thing he did it, and pretty soon the group started doing it. And I got this horrible image of what was going to happen. They were going to go back to AA in the L.A. basin and say, Dong taught us to start meetings by going, hmm. <laughs> oh. I see a lot of you brought your guidebooks. Would you turn to page one, please, and read along with me? <coughs> you on page one? Okay. We of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the planner. I thought you were at page one. Page one? This is the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm on page one. Oh, mine's the first edition. Okay. Now, there's a couple reasons I did this. A lot of people don't know of the massive change that took place in 1955 in our book. 
The doctor's opinion is page one in all editions of the first edition. It's a part of the body of the recovery process. Good morning, Danny. I was hoping you'd hear Where's that chair? That was for Danny. <coughs> so, I have to consider when I tell someone, go read the big book, which one? Are we on the same page? Are we carrying the same message? The message that got carried to me, and the reason I'm here is because someone carried me through the doctor's opinion, and it was so important because otherwise I could not have identified as an alcoholic. And there's a thing runs through AA that I hear drives me crazy, that the recovery process is in the first 164 pages. That leaves out the doctor's opinion, and the forewords, and the preface, but particularly the doctor's opinion. Now, I don't care why it happened. <coughs> I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and part of my job as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, by concept and by tradition and by the force of spirit, is to pass on the entire AA message. And the reason I'm making a point of it is we've started working with a lot of people who had come to us and they drink again, and then come back and they drink again. Y'all call them slippers, I just don't think they ever quit drinking. Uh, and the common thread was that they started on page one like we had told them to do and read the first 164 pages and missed this piece. We don't miss it. I know you all don't. When you read with somebody, you read it. But I've been guilty at one time of saying the first 164 pages till I thought about what I was saying. There's all kinds of stuff. I don't want to make an editorial out of this. But currently... At the next General Service Conference, at the last one, they asked the Literature Committee to bring back the possibility for a fourth edition big book. Just some changes in stories and all, because nobody's going to change the body of the text. <coughs> and I don't have any problem with that. I don't see any need for it, but I don't have any problem with it either. But what a grand time it would be to restore the big book to its original condition. We now have a reason for a fourth edition, I think. At least one to consider just put it back the way it was. Now that'll really cause some confusion. You need to understand that. It means that I will have to, at every time I do big book work, explain the difference. I'll have to start at the right place. I will have to become a better 12-step and a better sponsor. Because if they get a third edition, or in my case a second edition, we're not going to start on the same page unless we agree to. We don't want to confuse Danny. We already have him baffled. <laughs> what the hell have I fallen into here? Okay? It's that important. <clears throat> A couple other, other wonderful changes in this thing, too. I work out of a second edition simply because when I when I came for the first five weeks we weren't allowed to talk. We went through a 12-step study school and at the first meeting they informed us that uh, for five weeks we had nothing to say. If we knew anything at all we wouldn't be where we were. That we should just shut up and listen and they then they read the big book to us and shared their experience of the big book with us. I'm doing what I was shown how to do 29 years ago. This is how it was brought to me, and I just keep doing it. And if there's one person in the room of 50, it doesn't make the slightest bit of difference. 
this what I do? If this is all I do, I'm causing you a grave disservice. We got to take what happens here to the street. Well, that's what this weekend is about. Is talking about how that. viewpoint (coughs) attitude is critical in this deal. Here's a book. Now I would suggest to you let me tell you how important this book is to me. I had to I've had some visions along the way without the peyote. (laughs) I had them too. We were in Greenwich, Connecticut one night for a meeting. Why it came over me, I don't know, but it came over about 100 to 150 people in this room. And it struck me that there were more people in that room that night than there were in all of Alcoholics Anonymous the night they decided to put this book together. There were about 40 that night. And it transformed my mind. And I would suggest to you there are more people in this room in Slidell, Louisiana this morning than were in all of Alcoholics Anonymous and I, Bill and Bob, and the few that were there, realized that what they had was so important that it read it a book. Not a bestseller, but a book where the integrity of this message could be carried forth when they were dead and gone, when I'm dead and gone, when all the interpretation is over, the message is intact. That can either be great ego or great spiritual insight. Forty people, you want to write a book? And you all know the story of the book. We almost didn't get it. Selling bonds at 25 bucks in the bars. Five bucks crack. If you don't have 25, we'll take whatever you got. It has been in the hands of millions of us, literally millions of us, over the years. And we haven't really changed the word. We change how the words are presented sometimes. There are places that are now in italics that used to be in big, bold print. But the integrity of our message has been kept intact. That must be a pretty important book. Because we're good at changing things. I have some minor concerns today because I've seen some changes that have taken place in our book that caused me great concern. And it's not from the outside people who are now publishing our book, which they have every right to do. We don't have a copyright on this. Did you know that? We lost the copyright to the big book in 1967. It went into the public domain. By a fluke, when we put out the second edition in 1955, we assumed that it uh, renewed the copyright to the first edition, which it did in Canada, but by a strange twist of United States law, it didn't. So in 1967, the first edition big book went into the public domain. We didn't even know it until 1985, when somebody came up with a, well, actually late 84, came up with a mock-up of our first edition for 25 bucks to sell in Montreal. Uh, which, by the way, still has our copyright, so we couldn't sell it in Montreal. But it woke us up. It hasn't hurt us any. But what I'm concerned about is the changes we're making in our book. I may be nitpicking, but I ask you to consider. We will read at least twice in this, this book. They will make references to a group of stories in the back of this book. And they'll tell us how really, really important these stories are. And we now publish a version of our book that doesn't have any stories in it. It's about that big. I don't care about the size. I'm concerned with the integrity of the message, and it's my view. Here's the bomb, Clint. We should either put the stories back in or take those references out of the text. 
I love it. Nobody wants that piece of it. You and I are responsible for that, not they. I'm personally responsible for that having happened. I wasn't paying attention. It was a knee-jerk reaction to somebody else putting out a little book without stories in it. You know why they couldn't put out the stories? We still have the copyright on the stories. This one. It's just Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's not intact. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't start campaigns or go to war. I've quit fighting anybody or anything, but I talk about that. You just heard me talk about that. I talk about that with my delegate and my DCM, my GSR, and anybody who will listen to me. And I'm just saying, okay, don't you think we ought to do something? We're responsible. It happened while I was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't mean to start it that way. Well, yes, I did too. Because <laughs> we're gathered here. If I'm going to use this as a guide for my life, and if I'm going to t say to Danny, Danny, all of the answers to all of the life's problems that you will ever have can be found in this book, I better be sure that I'm giving him the right one. And it's, it's intact. I don't want to lie to him. If you lied to me or given me anything less than the whole message, I would not be here. See, when I came to you, I was certified as a sociopath type 2, a psychopath, and a manic depressive drug addict. And the whole idea of AA wasn't in my mind because nobody knew I was alcoholic. My alcoholism was hidden behind madness. <laughs> you know, it was such an integral part of my life, it was part of my life. Nobody ever saw that. They saw the other high drama that I created. <clears throat> so by that surrender that I had made, and by the way, the elements of surrender, not the definition of surrender, the elements of surrender for me was I got tired, bone weary, absolutely so tired I could no longer stand even breathing one more second. I couldn't be me. That's how tired I got. I died. I woke up. And when I woke up, it was a new attitude. I was willing to go anywhere anyone said, do anything anyone said, didn't make any difference, as long as it didn't have to be me again, ever. That, that me that had died. I was in a wonderful state, <laughs> a complete failure at living, and now a complete failure at dying. Makes you really willing to listen to whatever anybody says. Okay? Stuck in a body that won't die, carrying around with it a mind that won't work, and still breathing. I told you last night that's my definition of doomed. <laughs> so when you talk to me, I listen to every single thing that the members of Alcoholics Anonymous have said to me from day one till now. The first thing you gave me was a bullshit sister. It's a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. Whatever else is heard in AA I think is wonderful, but if I can't check it here, I either don't, I'm either too stupid, or it just isn't so. And so I don't do anything about it. And that includes my best ideas. This is my bullshit sister. When I get charged with a really good idea, there's a couple things I do. I talk to my wife first. Because <laughs> when I get charged, I do things. I don't know about you, but I'm a doer of things. And everything I do affects her life. 
And one of the guides here is when I'm going to affect people's lives, I ought to consult them anyway. Then I read this book out loud to somebody. The richness of my life is not because I read the big book. It's because I read the big book out loud to somebody. So I can hear what I'm saying. This is a, a journey of discovery for me in this book. My God, I was reading with one of my guys Tuesday morning. I read something and got so excited. I've read it thousands of times. And all of a sudden I saw what it really said. And he thought I was brilliant. I had just discovered it. Of course I was brilliant. The lights went on. <laughs> and I told him what I just found. He's 20 years sober. He said, my God, I didn't see that. We both got a little different experience out of the deal. It was talking about this vital sixth sense. Remember that piece? Just before that, the sentence says, this is God consciousness. And I've known that, but all of a sudden it was clear to me, God consciousness is the vital sixth sense that we're going to develop here. Whoa, I should have known that. <laughs> anyway, viewpoint. This is the message that made it possible for me to continue. We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. I was 100% sick. I need 100% recovery. If you tell me I'm going to have to stay sick the rest of my life, I would rather die. I really would. I'm not even interested in whatever you have in mind. You tell me you have a way I can learn to cope with alcoholism or whatever's wrong with me, I would rather die. I coped for 34 years. The word cope means, from the big dictionary, to fight the good fight. I'm tired. I won't fight anymore. We, Danny of Alcoholics Anonymous, are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. What the hell does that mean? Alcoholism has definable, recognizable symptoms. I do not suffer from any of those symptoms anymore. That's all recovered means. It doesn't mean elevated, special. It means I don't suffer from the symptoms of alcoholism anymore. What are those? One of them is an allergy to alcohol that causes me to need another drink if I take one. Well, I don't drink. I don't suffer from that one. The other is an obsession with alcohol that causes me to take the first drink. There hasn't been a thought of alcohol in my mind for 29 years. I don't know how it is with you, but it has been removed from me. It's gone. Thank God. I've lost the power of choice in drink. It's gone. I have no more choice today than I did when I quit. Every time I had a choice, I made the wrong one. Thank God I don't have to. I did not get up this morning and choose to stay sober. It didn't occur to me that I wouldn't be sober today. My life's in God's hands. Okay. There's no work to this. I can't cope with alcoholism. I can't cope with anything. My God, I certainly can't cope with this world. I don't know about you, but that's too much for me. I'm barely able to cope with the room clerk of the motel I'm going to. <laughs> So there's a message that got to me. You don't ever have to drink again. You don't ever have to feel the way you've been feeling ever again. That's a promise. 
We don't promise a trouble-free or pain-free life, but you don't ever have to feel the way you've been feeling ever again. The shame and the mystification of, why did I do that? What's wrong with me? You don't ever have to feel that again. That's what I needed to hear. That's, that's all it says. Let me give you another viewpoint, because I'm going to do some exploring this weekend, too, and there's some new things that happened for me. <clears throat> for years, I used this book to validate my experience. There's nothing wrong with that. Today, I must tell you, my experience validates this book. I am one of we, of Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything that I have done that they did the way they said they did it, I've gotten exactly the same result. And there's only one result here. When I hear people say it's either working or not working, I don't know what the hell they're talking about. I heard somebody say the other day, I've learned to live life on life's terms. That's interesting. I didn't know life made terms. Only people make terms. I checked it. I don't find it anywhere in here. So I'm just going to ignore it. Okay. I'm one of we, and I'm sure you are too. I feel the warmth in the room. We of Alcoholics Anonymous. What a great deal. On my own, I can't do it. We can. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. <clears throat> That's all I need to do for the rest of my life, and I'm useful. Remember, I died because I was useless. All I have to do is show you precisely how I recovered. And that's a broad, broad scope. How I recovered is different than how you recovered because I recovered in a penitentiary. So I didn't have the luxury of being able to call my sponsor when I felt bad. He didn't have a phone. I didn't either. In fact, quite often we were sequestered. <laughs> And I use that word because that was one of the changes that took place for me. I started out in a prison cell. And as I awakened spiritually, it occurred to me one day, sitting in that place, this 8 by 10 room with a bunk and a toilet and a sink, that this is how monks live. In fact, they call themselves. They are sequestered in a safe place where they have time and place for solitude. Same kind of room. And my cell changed from a punitive place to a place of solitude and safety. That, play, that took place in here. They didn't do a single damn thing to change it, and neither did I. Didn't even move the pillow. It changed in here. In the first edition, to show other alcoholics, or the forward, precisely how it recovered is in big, bold black type. It was a little more important then than it is now, apparently. I don't know. Uh, isn't that nice? I can be useful at my worst. One of my dearest friends was old Jack Brennan. I don't know if any of you ever heard Jack. He's long dead now. Old wheel man for the New York mob. Got fired from that job, by the way. Uh, Jack was a good driver, but he was a bad drunk. And uh, he'd call him the next morning after a big holdup and whatever else they did and say, What did we do last night? And the boys got a little nervous and thought maybe Jack, despite being a good driver, they probably couldn't use him because they didn't know for sure where he was going to take him during the night. <laughs> <clears throat> Jack got thrown out of his apartment one time by the police and spent a number of years, every time he got drunk, doing battle with the police. And by the time he got sober, there was an eye gone, his tongue was chewed. He, uh, he talked funny, Jack, Jack always talked a little funny because his tongue was all battered up. 
and he uh, he was in bad shape when he got here. <clears throat> couldn't tie his own shoes. Couldn't use fork and knife. For about six months, he just kind of nursed him. Uh, he used to laugh because he's a staunch Irish Catholic, and God sent a little Jewish fellow out to twelve-step him and <laughs> become his sponsor. <laughs> and he used to tell him, "Jack, you're really important to this group. You really are important." And he said he was six months sober, tying his shoe when it hit him that he was tying his own shoe. And it pissed him off. Because this little Jewish fellow has told him how important he was, and he's aware for six months I haven't even been able to tie my shoes. How important can I be? And he went and complained. And his little sponsor says, Oh, Jack, you have no idea the number of people you've helped. You're so important. When new people come here, we sit them next to you and tell them, You keep drinking, that's what you're going to be like. There is a place for everyone in Alcoholics Anonymous to be useful. My little friend Chuck was so useful to me because I had become big book bound. If you weren't doing it precisely this way and the timing, and you've been there. Everybody who has a big book gets there. Chuck had been sober eight years and had actually become a counselor at Hazleton and was doing fine when he drank. And he had two or three other times when they did that and he drank. And when he got to me, he hated everybody. And I asked him what he thought about God. He said, I hate the son of a bitch. And I understand that we each get a couple seconds with him somewhere down the road, and I can't wait for my turn. I'm going to tell him what I think of this deal, and I'm going to go on to hell whistling and happy. And because of the way my mind works, my whole thought was, well, that's nice. He believes. We, we have an attitude problem. But... Okay. Chuck can look me right in the eye and tell me, get that thing away from me. I tried the big book. It didn't work. So that was the truth. He had, and it didn't work. What am I going to tell him? Hated AA. Reserved the right to drink one last time. That was the deal when he asked me to sponsor. Well, he didn't ask me to sponsor. He hated sponsors. Wouldn't call me sponsor. But he's willing to work with me. For a year and a half, I carried Chuck around in my truck every day while he vented this venom and healed. How useful to me. Everything I knew, all this grandiosity, this stuff you make me do here, like you think I know something, had caught me. I thought I did. And with Chuck, there was nothing except riding around the van. One day we came home, and Jackie had made some chocolate chip cookies. And uh, we gave him one. And he made the mistake of saying, well, that was good, which to a cookie baker means, here, Chuck, have a bag. Gave him a whole sack of cookies. And we got to the car, and he said, why would she do that? Why would she give me cookies? And I was able to say to Chuck, well, Chuck, it's because she thinks you're a member of the family. And that's the day and that's the time his life changed. Nothing we had done to that point except he had been allowed to come and go in my house for a little over a year. And when I identified that as being a member of the family, it was true. And when you belong to anything, you're no longer alone. The healing begins to take place. So, our first job isn't to slam people with a big book. The first job is to touch them. And say, we're really glad you're here, you poor sick son of a bitch. (laughs) I really understand that you need a cookie.
So new people are really, really useful because they keep me there. They keep me from getting smart. Bring me back to just why we're here. I might as well. I've got. I've got six more. Five more hours. I might as well tell you the rest of Chuck's story. Who you know? We finally got through the steps the way they are in the Big Book. Chuck is a, a Big Book fanatic these days. Clint knows him. He's about five foot two and mean as a snake and doesn't mind telling you. He really still has a bad attitude problem. Uh, I love him dearly. He won't hurt you anymore. But uh, he's very picky as to who he likes and very opinionated about AA <laughs> on the steps and not altogether well. But we got through the steps, Chuck awakened. There was a time he would not use the word God. He hated it. Now he'll, he's in touch with God. You did not dare touch Chuck. Been around those kind? You touch them and they will bite you. This was a wounded animal. So we messed with him all the time. And he claimed to be dyslexic, so we'd make him read the fifth chapter. <laughs> And he loved AA so much that he memorized it so he could do it right. And then I caught him one day. I said, if you memorized it, you had to read it to do that. Don't give me that shit. And he quit being dyslexic. Vinoy Shaw was in town for our convention. Vinoy's a big Illinois out of Texas. And she just loves everybody and hugs everybody. And I couldn't go to the convention. But Chuck was at the time where we were not touching him. And he... He'd jump and all. He'd tell you right up front, I don't hug. Don't do that. So I said, you be sure to hear Vinoy's talk, because she gives the best AA talk I've heard in a long time. Because she's out on don't mean nothing. And when you're through, you be sure you go up and thank her. And he follows directions. He does do that. And, I, and she told me later, this nasty little person comes up to her to thank her and when I just threw a big bear hug on him that's what she does and he looked up at her and said lady I don't hug and she said tough sonny I do <laughs> his dad died Chuck got a little money we got his financial amends taken care of and he still had a couple grand and a new car and he came to me and uh, in tears God gave him back that gift he said I got one last thing to tell you I've never I haven't told anybody for years because everybody I ever told has laughed at me. But I have a dream and I'm afraid to tell you. And I said, well, tell me, Chuck. He said, I want to be an actor. He was a good actor from the day I met him. There's no question about that. And I believe that people ought to chase their dreams. So I said, well, look, you also want to go to Disneyland because Chuck didn't know how to play. And part of my sponsorship is you will learn how to play if you're on me. It's a suggestion in the big book. Each family plays as much or as little. Newcomers could see no fun about this. They wouldn't want to stay. So we played. And he wanted to go to Disneyland. So I said, look, you got two grand left. You got the car. Disneyland's open. You just got fired from another job, so you're not working. Why don't you go on out to Disneyland? And while you're there, I'll make a couple calls, because I know some people in the business. And you can talk to a successful actor, and he will be able to tell you what the price you have to pay will be to be an actor. See, there's a price for everything. So he went, and I made the contact for him. 
And my friend took him out to Warner's and was showing him around Warner's and just talking with him. Uh, took him on to the Murphy Brown set and they were fooling around and the producer of the Murphy Brown stopped and talked to my friend. And uh, in the introduction he says, and this is Chuck, and Chuck would like to be an actor. And the producer says, oh good, we can use him. And he became an extra on the Murphy Brown show that day. Less than two weeks out there, and he's already on television. Got into acting school, was doing fine. His car was hit by a truck on the freeway in the next three years. We're not good. He was badly hurt. Went through his I hate God business. Why is God doing this to me business and all that anyway. At eight years, he drank again. Thank God. Because he was off into pain pills and self-pity and hate. And he was divorcing himself from everybody. And he drank again, thank God. <coughs> he had one last reservation. He had told me early on he reserved the right to drink one more time because if this didn't work, he was going to drink himself to death. Well, eight years and I screwed that up. He tried. He lasted three days. He just didn't have the heart for it. <laughs> Came back and he's been sober ever since. We worry way too much about people drinking. I hate to see it. It hurts me every time it happens. But sometimes, if they don't drink, they'll kill themselves. Sometimes if they do drink, they'll kill themselves too. But who am I to make that judgment? Heard from Chuck last week. He got married. Please pray for him. (laughs) (laughs) But after the hospital stuff was all over and he got a little settlement, not enough to do much, but enough that he got back on his feet back into acting school. He just closed in one play and has opened on another one. He's on live stage in Los Angeles doing what he wanted to do. Sober, back hanging around with the people he hates the most. (laughs) It's sounding pretty good. And he was so useful to me because I got to watch this and be part of it. And know without a shadow of a doubt, nothing I did had anything to do except the one thing that this is all about I let God demonstrate through me what sobriety is and when the time came I showed him what I did but I suggest this to you sobriety by itself is the most impossible condition of all for any alcoholic to live with and to recommend sobriety by itself is almost criminal. <clears throat> the reason we drink is because we can't stand living sober. <laughs> it hurts too much. It's too confusing. When, when I'm filled with self, there's nothing but pain. <clears throat> when I was going through that business with the uh, <clears throat> interferon and the hepatitis and all that stuff, I got furious with the pain. In fact, I inventoried the pain because I was so mad at it. Because when you're in pain, it forces you to be self-aware, self-centered. There's no way out. You just... But by the grace of God, I found a way. I'm still in pain. Always will be. That's part of the human condition, by the way. But I no longer suffer from the pain. There's a difference. We have an, an incurable disease, but we don't have to suffer from it. I'm not cured of alcoholism, I've recovered from it. 
I don't have the symptoms anymore. One of the symptoms is self-centeredness. And if I start getting self-centered, I'll start suffering. <laughs> and when I'm suffering from self-centeredness, I try to fix it. If I'm suffering from loneliness, I can go find another girlfriend. Well, the reason I'm lonely is because the last one couldn't stand me left. Because <laughs> I was too self-centered. Yeah, yeah, let's go back to the big book. Many do not comprehend that the alcoholic is a very sick person. As a sponsor, I need to continually be aware of that. That the people I'm working with, like myself, but particularly the new ones coming in, are very sick people. And I need to treat them that way. I have never yet heard a nurse yell at a patient. Have you? Oh, we are nurses for sick people. We got nursing along for a while. Uh, what do you say, Clint? Bedpan Harry. Bedpan Harry. Okay. <laughs> and I need to remember that because after I've been through the big book several times and gotten so goddamn smart, I started instructing instead of nursing. What do you mean you haven't got your four step done? You big. <laughs> I don't do it that way. I've got one right now in, in inventory, and we'll go over how I do that. There's a step-by-step -step method, and we're, we meet every Wednesday morning at 7.30. She called Tuesday evening and said, I haven't finished. Is there any reason to meet? Reason to meet? I said, no. <laughs> there isn't. We have nothing to talk about. We're in a process now where everything goes on the paper. If you haven't finished that, we have nothing to talk about. Finish it. That may go on for a while. If it goes on more than eight weeks, the chair is empty, and someone else will fill the chair. That's all. You just didn't able to do it. I don't know why. I will continue to encourage, but I never try to force. How would you like to have been forced by that? I wouldn't. It was imperative that I do it, but they didn't force me. <coughs> Then it says, and besides, we're sure our way of living has its advantages for all. Now, in my self-centered arrogance, I used to think that means that you ought to live the same way I do. It would be good for you. What it means is that my being sober has its advantages for everybody around me. Okay. My way of living, it's much more advantageous to you to have me living the way I am than the way I used to. <laughs> okay. Just another view. That's why we keep reading this over and over, Helen. <laughs> Yeah. My children are better off because of this way of living. My boss is much better off because of this way of living. My parents are better off because our way of living has its advantages for them. <laughs> and then I learned some things about how to conduct myself as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous publicly. Because <clears throat> we're not a secret society, we're an anonymous society. Simple means that we're equal. And nobody speaks for AA. I speak for my experience of AA, but not for AA. <coughs> so when it says when writing or speaking publicly about alcoholism, we urge each of our members, or each of our fellowship, to admit his personal name, designating himself instead as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. So at open meetings, like this one, my name is Don, and I am an alcoholic. And I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
on a more personal level, you get my whole name. But at a public level, I just comply with this. It's nothing fancy. <coughs> Old Bob White, who was one of my heroes, said all we do here is comply with the conditions. So you may not like that. <laughs> comply doesn't fit well into the alcoholic makeup. So all we have to do is comply with the conditions. So it says do that, that's what I do. People find great whimsy in my little group's name. We not only find it whimsical, we're complying with the conditions. It's any two or three alcoholics gather for sobriety may call themselves an AA group, and that's the name of my group. That's how it's registered, an AA group. Our central office spent three weeks trying to figure out, telling us we can't do that. And we said, we are already doing it. Just write it down somewhere. <laughs> I was in my first federal penitentiary when I was 19 years old <coughs> in Japan. And it was not because I was a big time criminal. I was a 19 year old drunk. And I was baffled by that. I mean, when I joined the Navy, I really had it in my 17 year old mind to come home a hero, having saved America from the communist menace. Truth was, Denver was too small for me already my head was too big nobody but the, I ran with some other guys who nobody else liked either we ran up and down Colfax drinking beer and looking for girls uh, I remember the night we found some it was a terrible night all we knew was looking we didn't know what to do when you found them they didn't know either it was a bad night <laughs> So I joined the Navy, and I really loved the Navy. I loved the work. It was challenging. I was a radarman and radioman on a destroyer. Uh, at 17 and 18, war was exciting. We went to Korea, and we'd blow them up during the day, and they'd fix them up during the night, and we'd go back and blow them up during the day. I have no idea how many people we killed, but I do know we killed one whole herd of cows. <laughs> they were where we were supposed to be shooting, so we, somebody ate good that week. I loved hanging out with the guys where you cuss and spit and chew, and we drank everything. We drank some stuff that was just downright dangerous. Thank God we didn't ever have to fire our torpedoes because there wasn't any fuel left in them. There's, there's a way of straining the lead out of that and mixing it with grape juice, and it'll put you to the moon. <laughs> One of our guys, I know today he was an alcoholic. As they were taking me off the ship in handcuffs, they were bringing him back on in handcuffs. This guy had drank so much torpedo fuel that his stomach was rotted. And he would tell you, if you mess with me, I'll puke on you. And he could just without even thinking about it. But they brought him aboard, and I was listening to him tell the quarterdeck watch why he'd been gone for 30 days. Well, he'd been kidnapped by the communist Chinese and held in a shack tied to the midpole for 30 days while they interrogated him for all this incredible information and secret stuff he knew. I thought, I like that. <laughs> it won't fly, but what a story. He's one of us. I hope to God he got sober somewhere. It doesn't surprise any of you, does it? <clears throat> of course, someone important as me. They knew right away, kidnapped this one. <laughs> I went on liberty and just kept getting back late. 
When I drink alcohol, I get lost and can't find my way home. On time. Or at all. So I'd get a captain's mask, because I was a couple hours late getting back. <coughs> the last time that happened, I was 23 days late getting back. I'd been given a 24-hour liberty in Long Beach, and 22 days later, I'm still in Pershing Square in Los Angeles, mooching drinks. Wanting to do and having done anything as long as I can keep drinking. Lost and baffled and scared, but I gotta keep drinking. I could not go back to that ship under any circumstances. I couldn't even run away and go home. <clears throat> On day 23, whatever that was, wasn't there anymore. The madness was gone. And I turned myself in and returned to the ship as a sane human being to face the consequences of my act. Which put me in a federal penitentiary and gave me a bad conduct discharge. But I was baffled. Why would that happen? What's wrong with me that that would happen? Because I love the Navy. Well, in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, in a portion called The Doctor's Opinion, it tells me precisely why I did that. <coughs> Since I'm the only one with the first edition, we'll go to Roman numeral number. 27. That's XXVII for those of you who are illiterate. <laughs> when I first came upon this, I was a sociopath type 2, a psychopath, a manic depressive drug addict, dog tired and not knowing what in the hell's wrong with me. And they read this out loud to me. I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. I've had many men who had, for example, worked a period of months on some problem or business deal, which was to be settled on a certain date favorably to them. They took a drink a day or two prior to the date, and then the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests, and the important appointment was not met. These men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control, and there it was, my first duck feather. I took a drink in Long Beach, and 24 hours later I was due back on the ship. And it was 22 days before I could go back to the ship. <coughs> Some kind of craving took over that became paramount to all other interests. It wasn't that I didn't love the Navy, or my family, or my job, or me. It had nothing to do with anything except when I take a drink, I must continue to drink. It's paramount to all other interests, including life, family, work, health. This is serious business and I've got it. That's what's wrong with me. What a wonderful thing. That ever happened to you? <laughs> oh. Oh. There are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. They kill themselves. They are unable to, to go on. My second duck feather, I had just done that. <coughs> I thought it was because of the drugs. See, I'm not a drug addict. For 14 years, I used amphetamines. For four and a half, I injected them. Massive amounts. But I was always able to stop or moderate, to not use them. I had some control over that. I misused them terribly. But if it was important, I could quit. With the alcohol, once I take a drink, I can't find my way home. That's all. 
that happens to you, you're probably alcoholic. I've been all the other things that you read in there. I'm not going to read this whole book to you. I was never all these all at one time. But in some part of my drinking, I was the, the psychopath, the, uh, planned the drinking. We used to drink ourselves sober, my friend Jordy and I. You know, normal people don't do that. When, when we'd get what I call knee-walking drunk, which means that's the only way you can walk is on your hands and knees, and we weren't through. I mean, getting drunk is not the mark of an alcoholic. A lot of people like to get drunk. That means they finally drink themselves to a place where there's enough and they go to sleep or pass out or whatever. When we reached that place, we weren't through. I have memories of reaching that place and sticking my finger down my throat so I could chuck all that stuff out so I had room for more. That's not normal drinking. <laughs> that's, that's not even unhealthy drinking. <laughs> okay. And then Jory and I found one time that when we got to that place, there was a particular brand of domestic champagne. I don't know what it was, some cheap crap. And if we started drinking that, we would drink ourselves sober. Meaning we would drink ourselves back to where we could get off our knees and felt like we were back in control where we could start drinking again. Yeah. Did you have one a brand like that to do that for you? Yeah. That's not just hard drinking. I mean, maybe once if you're on a toot and want to finish the toot. But we're talking about a lifestyle here for me that I did not see, that nobody saw. My friend Angie Dill says the second name for alcoholism is I ain't got it. <laughs> I do not see what's going on. I'm blind. <clears throat> so, he goes through the different types of alcoholics. And this is just viewpoint, please. And he says that all these and many others have one symptom in common. And this is a doctor talking to us. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. Now, I had to get straight in my mind. That doesn't mean when I take a drink, I suddenly go... <laughs> I do the in here, but not out here. It simply means if I take a drink of alcohol, I will take another drink of alcohol. There are no circumstances possible where I won't be able to get another drink of alcohol. I've either done it or heard it. Hospitals, jails, prisons, detox centers. You always have a friend like me. We had a lot of our friends end up in the psychiatric ward to come out of General Hospital. And uh, good old Don would bring it in. You'll always have a friend like me if you're like me. I know what you need. The doctors think you need Thorazine. I know you need a drink. Now the doctors are really baffled. <laughs> they had you pinned down until you mixed the Thorazine and the, and the booze and where the hell did you yeah. The phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy which differenti differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. Another duck feather. I have felt my whole life that I was different. And my sponsor now says, that's because you're different. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. 
I am not like my mother when it comes to alcohol or any other way. I am different. I'm not like the people I even hung out with. I'm different. Unless they happen to be alcoholic and then we're different in the same way. What a lovely piece of information. I'm different because I'm different. And you're different because you're different. Our body chemistry is different. I watch Jackie drink. It's disgusting. About once every five, six years, she'll have a Kahlua. And I know the night's over. About 30 minutes later, she goes to sleep. I've even seen her have two Kahlua and cream. That lasts 23 minutes. God, what would you do with a Kahlua and cream? Now let me out of here and get something good. Party's on. It has never been by any treatment with which we're familiar permanently eradicated. If you got it, you're doomed. You got it, you got it forever. There's no treatment possible for this aspect of alcoholism to this day, and they have tried. My God, they've come up with some pills and some enzyme changes and all that. Alcoholics who drank still drink. Nothing can be done. All we can suggest is entire abstinence. Don't drink. This will never happen if you don't drink. And, and the identifier here is if, if this phenomenon of craving does not happen to me, then all the bizarre behaviors that follow that first drink don't happen to me either. Since I've quit drinking, I can not only find my way home, I'm usually on time. I've been living in the same house for coming up on, what, my God, 21 years. Over 20 years. And there hadn't been a single night that I got lost and couldn't find my way there. I can't say that I quit going to the penitentiary. Uh, I go a lot. In fact, I have the keys. I work in corrections. For two years, I, I, I stood in front of a, of a prison in North Carolina while they literally handed me the keys. And that thing ran through me. I wonder if they know who they're giving these to. <laughs> I supervised programs in 15 penitentiaries. Came and went as I pleased. And I thought, what a marvelous thing. What a change that is. Because I never have liked penitentiaries. But I had an experience in the maximum security penitentiary five years ago, four years ago. It was a burning bush kind of thing. I was, it was night. We were in the center of a maximum security penitentiary, surrounded by bad guys. And a sense of safety came over me, and the thought with it, I have never been any safer, nor will I ever be any safer than I am at this moment. Completely at peace with that. Let me tell you why those, those events are important. That's what I carry with me into that penitentiary. If I'm going to go, here's an axiom for you. It's not in the big book, but it's here in different words. Large caged animals are nervous. Minnesota farmers know that. That's why bulls have plenty of room to move. People who are responsible for keeping large caged animals caged are even more nervous. Okay. New people who come to me, because God sends me the psychopaths and the sociopaths, 
are large caged animals and they are nervous. So it behooves me not to make any sudden movements. Did you ever watch somebody work big bulls? Easy does it. I never have had any trouble at all, ever, including the psych wards of maximum security penitentiaries. I've never had trouble with the inmates. I have to be really careful of the keepers. They are nervous. And so if you're going to do this work, and you probably will, just remember, don't make any quick moves. <laughs> You'll be okay. Around Chuck, you didn't make any quick moves at all. Here, Chuck, have a cookie. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, Clint knows it. We got a guy six foot four in one of our groups back home. Chuck's about five foot two, and this guy made the mistake. What step are you working, Sonny? And Sonny just quietly informed me, he said, you big son of a bitch, I can climb up one side of you, cross your head and down the other side, and chew your ankles off before you can even take another breath. Back off. <laughs> <laughs> and he did. <laughs> so I've got a disease, an illness, an actual physical allergy. If I had an allergy to tomatoes and I ate tomatoes, I'd break out with a rash. The symptom of my disease, one of the symptoms of my disease, is simply that I break out with an itch for another drink if I take a drink. That's the manifestation of my allergy. It will cause me to have to have another drink. And it will be paramount to all of it. Can you think, see what that does to the guilt in a human being? I really love my family and my children. But I'd take a drink and they became secondary. And I don't know why. I just know if I have to make a choice between them and a drink, I'll take the drink. And it just eats me alive. I don't want to be that way. And I'm powerless over it. I can't stop it from happening. The only solution we have is don't drink. Well, that, that leads to a problem, doesn't it? Suckworth must have been something. Smokers are getting restless. Hallelujah, brother, the snakes come later. I need to smoke. <laughs> What's your pleasure? Shortly after 11. We're going to run until about 11.30. We can keep running. We can break now and come back at 1. We can come back at 12.30. This schedule is lovely. Don't pay any attention to it. <laughs> we get to do what we damn well please. Okay. What, what's your pleasure? I, I really can tell that some of the smokers need to smoke. And we are at about a place where I want to start something that's going to take more than 15 minutes. Okay, take a break. Back here at 12.30. Okay. Enough's enough. <laughs> that locked in. Thank you. <laughs> Not everyone's here yet. <clears throat> How long do you want to wait? Okay. 
we don't have an opening. We're, we've pretty much done away with When you get my age, things go. First thing is your memory, then ritual. So at six o'clock in the morning, we gather and we get quiet. We've gone back to real basics. See, originally, <coughs> as AA was forming, the first group activities, of course, came out of the customs of the Oxford group, and that was simply be still until someone was inspired to say something. That was the morning meeting at Henrietta's house and other places. So my little group does that. It's kind of interesting. We got concerned with ritual because we began to see that we were ritualizing people to death. We were teaching them our lingo and not teaching them our principles. And uh, <clears throat> I don't know if you've had the experience. I have. Or I got my group did it right for so many years. When I went to somebody else's group, you weren't doing it right. <laughs> it all had to do with the rituals. But anyway, we get still. I understand our core group and my group. It's an autonomous AA group that meets in a correctional facility in the basement. But we are an autonomous outside AA group, and that's just we pay rent and everything. We do that so the inmates have an opportunity to have access. We won't sign slips, we won't do anything, they can come or not. And since they don't know our ritual, when they come, they get still with us. So their first exposure to AA is be still and listen. <laughs> Which is what saved my life. I just realized that, by the way. We've been doing it. Most of the things that I tell you are things that I just realized that I've been doing for a long time and I just finally realized it. <clears throat> That's very nice. If you will think about the power of God, the greatest demonstration of the power of God for us is to be in a room full of alcoholics who are being quiet. That takes a lot of power. <laughs> okay. Shall thank you. I'm recentered. We're gonna bounce along here. first time through Bill's story, I didn't identify with much because I was looking at what happened. That has changed. I am Bill. He went to play golf. I went off to become a semi-pro bowler. I didn't want to be a professional because you have to work too hard. As a semi-pro, I could drink a lot and get by, which is all I really wanted to do anyway. But I would suggest something. So this is just my experience and my viewpoint this weekend. Let me share something I found here. Bill is at a state where he has been to Dr. Silkworth twice. The last time Lois has been told, you might as well get him a keeper at this rate, maybe a year, when you're looking at a dead man or an insane man. Just There's nothing more we can do. <clears throat> He's sitting at home drinking gin. He is drunk. Looking forward to getting even drunker when Abby shows up. The awakenings that Bill talks about in Bill's story occurred while he was drinking and while he was drunk, not when he was sober. That's important for me. God doesn't have a rule that says you gotta be drunk before I'll come visiting. Or you gotta be sober before I come visiting. 
happened for Bill while he was drinking. Drinking to the point where right after he awakened, and let me see if, I, if awakening is the right word. Huh. It melted the icy intellectual mountain in whose shadow I had lived and shivered many years. I stood in the sunlight at last. That sounds like an awakening to me. Drunk. It was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make a beginning. We're on page 12, I'm sorry. I thought I was a big book expert in the pages. <laughs> I saw the growth could start from that point. That sounds like an awakening to me. Drunk. <clears throat> and it's important to me because I need to remember and not be so damned arrogant in my 12-step work that I insist that you be sober before I'll talk to you. If that had been the case, none of us would be here. Thus was I convinced that God is concerned with us humans when we want him enough. Drunk. At long last, I saw, I felt, I believed. Scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes. A new world came into view. That sounds like an awakening to me. <laughs> and in that state, I went to the hospital where I was separated from alcohol for the last time. Treatment seemed wise, for I showed signs of glaring tremens. Please, God, let me remember that. Always. The suggestion in 12-step work is that a man's mind needs to be cleared before we present all this information to him. Uh, but it doesn't have to have a very clear mind to have someone come and be a demonstration for you and put the hope and wake you up. And anyway, I love this piece. If we could just be Bill and go through this, we wouldn't need all the rest of it. Because here it is. It's all right here. There I humbly offered myself to God as I then understood Him, to do with me as He would. I placed myself unreservedly under His care and direction. I admitted for the first time that of myself I was nothing, that without Him I was lost. I ruthlessly faced my sins and became willing to have my newfound friend take them away root and branch. I have not had a drink since. <coughs> my goodness, that's a lot of stuff. The conception of a newfound friend is one that I can always deal with. At my worst, there's hope when there's a newfound friend. Maybe this time it'll work. Here's someone who cares just enough about me that maybe this time it'll be okay. There's that sense of hopefulness. There's a concept of God I can work with. It, has to sh it shatters everything else I've ever thought about God. We means God's going to be my friend. Anybody have any problem with that one? Lots of people do. I was brought up believing Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, but if you do something wrong, you're done. Confused the hell out of me. <laughs> my schoolmate visited me, and I fully acquainted him with my problems and deficiencies. We made a list of people I had hurt, or toward whom I felt resentment. I expressed my entire willingness to approach these individuals admitting my wrong. Never was I to be critical of them. I was to write all such matters to the utmost of my ability. I like that much better than amend. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about a lightweight apology here. 
Lightweight apologies will not take care of the sense of overwhelming guilt that I have. Our message has depth and weight. I can tell you, Danny, there's some work ahead. You've done some shit that you got to go back and clean up, and it's going to just eat your lunch. Thank God, because if it were any less than that, it wouldn't have any meaning to me. I get to really go back and set right the wrongs I've done. Boy, boy, boy. Never was I to be critical of them. Absolutely impossible to an unaided alcoholic mind. I'm going to say it several times this weekend. I want to shatter a new piece of water down AA. In inventory, I do not look for my part. If I have only a part, so do you still have a part. And this thing tells me I'm to ignore anything you may have done entirely and look for my mistake, not my part. I'm to never be critical of you. You have no part in the way I feel about this, the resentment or the fear. Only me. We'll get to more of that later if you wish. I do not look for my part. I look for my mistake. Where was I wrong? Me, not you. If you're a son of a bitch, I picked you. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was to test my thinking by the new God consciousness within. We had an old Assembly of God preacher used to come. Now, I love to meet with the Assembly of God folks because they sing. And I love to make a joyous noise unto the Lord. I just, I can get into it. I can't go along with much else. It's just me. But I love to sing with them. And I love the people I have met among the assembly of God. This, this old boy used to come in every Sunday. He was doing what AA 12 steppers do. He was taking his own time out, going to the most hostile environment he could find to carry his message. So I listened to him. <clears throat> Don't disregard what spiritual people had to say, no matter what their doctrine. And he taught us how to do this in a very practical way. He said, there are times, and he claimed, Jesus was alive and well in him. He was conscious of the presence of God. He said, there's still times I, I'm doubtful. I'm just not sure. And we said, well, what do you do then? And he says, well, I take him by the hand and say to him, if I go do this, will you go with me? And what an awakening that was. I either get a yes or get a no. If I don't get anything at all, it's No. I know where I am God is and will go anywhere with me, but that's a good test for my behavior. That has grown some. The question no longer is, will you go with me? Would I do this now if he were with me? Well, he's with me all the time, and it really becomes a guide for my behavior. Good stuff. Can't do it unaided. Takes the very power of God to make me able to do that. But that's available. <laughs> common sense thus becomes uncommon sense. It doesn't say common feeling becomes uncommon feeling. Common sense becomes uncommon sense. There is a sense of things that transcends feelings. Feelings are based on whether it's hot or cold or sunshiny or dark or my perception of what's cute and exciting. Feelings aren't to be disregarded, but they're certainly not to be trusted either as the final gauge <laughs> for any decision that I might make. 
how I feel about things, my sponsor said, meant absolutely nothing to him. He just really didn't care. In fact, uh, it seemed to me that he liked me feeling bad more than anything else. Never denied me my pain, and I will never deny you your pain. If I stop your pain halfway through your journey, you don't get to go back and pick it up halfway. You've got to go all the way back to the beginning and do the whole damn thing over again. That's my experience. More better, I encourage your pain. And he did that in little ways like this. Oh, Bruce, I say, I feel so guilty. He said, you should. <laughs> you are. <laughs> Finally, somebody who understands. Bruce, I feel weird and strange. You are. <laughs> Bruce, I'm terrified of my own mind. You have good reason to be. <sighs> Finally, somebody who understands. There's freedom in every one of those things when I finally get it straight. And I get it straight because somebody says, yeah, I know. So what's your point? I love you anyway. What's the difference? Uh, when I, w I was to sit quietly when in doubt, asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me. Absolutely contrary to the alcoholic evil nature. What do you mean sit quietly when in doubt? When you're worried or in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout, create a diversion. Okay. Get them busy till you can get out. <laughs> That's my nature. The minute you catch me off base and I'm wrong, I have a multitude of things I'm going to do immediately that will in five minutes have you begging for mercy and my forgiveness because you were so wrong. <laughs> I'm not about to look at me in my ego state. Mm -hmm. The basic AA prayers are right here. Learning to pray is what I'm about. If I'm going to have a relationship with God, I have to learn to communicate. We just call that prayer and meditation. Communication is a two-way street. I talk and I listen. If it's a newfound friend, I'm going to talk that way to him. I talk to God just like I talk to you. I remember one afternoon I called him a big bully. It seemed to me that's what he was. Didn't seem to bother him any. Unfortunately, the minute I uttered it, I realized who the bully was. Warned him. I say him. I don't know. That's a non-genderized him, by the way. I need direction and strength. I'm confused, so I need direction, which I get. Now I know what I'm supposed to do. I don't want to do that. That's going to take some time and energy and some work and some talent. I don't want to do it. I know the right thing. I just don't want to do it. So I ask for the strength to do it anyway. You want to be careful of that one. That's a very dangerous prayer, I've learned. If you pray for strength, that's what you get. You don't get relief. <laughs> okay. You get strength. Okay. God's very merciful. If all I want is relief, I'll get it. It may take a drink to give me relief. I'm allowed to do whatever it takes, but if I ask for strength, I will get strength. And several times through this book, give me the strength to do the right thing. Point me in the right direction and give me some strength. And in my experience, my strength comes from 
the partners that walk the path with me. That seems to be who he sends me. You are my strength. When we walk together, there's nothing can stand in our way. Nothing. And out of that simple idea came the fellowship that brought us together this weekend. Bill did this on his own for six months, and uh, nobody got sober. And he was going nuts. It was not a good deal. And then he and Bob started doing it together and look at it. Here we are. Never was that a pray for myself, except as my request might borrow my usefulness to others. This is not about me. My sobriety is not for me. It's for you. My life is none of my business. Only the conduct of my life is my business. I am responsible for my conduct. Very easy solution to the ambition problem. Don't have any. I'm, I'm one of those people that my mother warned me against. A man without ambition. I have no idea what I want to be when I grow up. I can tell you this. I sincerely hope that I die before I grow up and become an adult. I've met two of them. And I don't want to be like that. <laughs> Still a little judgmental, but they were certainly nobody I wanted to hang out with. They didn't know how to have fun. I suggest to you that we are on God's amusement park planet. Yeah. We are God's children. What are children supposed to be doing most of the time? Playing. And you know I take this whole damn thing seriously. And we miss it. This is a goofy place, this planet is. There's just a never-ending amount of fun going on here. And the animals on this planet, particularly the people types, are fascinating. Better than any zoo that you can imagine. <laughs> I need something, and, I, and, and I've known it since I was a small child, and I'm fully aware of it now. What I need most is a sense of the presence of God. That's all I need. And I ran into this, and it hit me. I cannot ask for that. If this is true, I can't ask for that for me. I can only ask for it as it might bear on my usefulness to you. Now, my schemer has never died. I just let it work under some guidance and direction. And I have a prayer I'm going to give you that has been with me for years that comes right out of here. Everything I do comes right out of this book. Dear God, please fill me with your loving spirit and let it flow through me and into the lives of others. And that works. As long as it's flowing through me, I am full. Yes. Please fill me with your loving spirit and let it flow through me and into the lives of others. Find your own variation on that theme. I used to say, fill me with your love, and somewhere it expanded, it's got to be more than that. Anyway, that works, and it came from here. This is a guidebook. If it's true, it'll fit, and it'll be my guide. How do I conduct myself? Isn't that wonderful? All laid out right in front of us. 
than only might I expect to receive, but that would be in great measure.